All right, now, I want to uh, kick off our interview today with some statements that should be uncontroversial. Uh, global warming is real and represents a dire risk to humanity. Uh, global warming is largely caused by the burning of fossil fuels, and to have any chance, we must urgently move to alternatives. Now, here's a quote, and see if you can guess where this originates. By the time global warming becomes detectable, it could be too late to take effective countermeasures to reduce the effects or even stabilise the situation. So where does that quote come from? The answer is a 1988 report commissioned by Royal Dutch Shell. And yet here we are still burning fossil fuels at a prodigious rate. Now, my guest today might have a few things to say about that. Uh, Ian Dunlop is a Cambridge-educated engineer with a particular interest in the interaction of corporate governance, corporate responsibility and sustainability. And Ian chaired the Australian Greenhouse Office Experts Group on Emissions Trading with CEO of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. And Ian is a member of the Club of Rome and a fellow contributing author of Sustainability and the New Economics, published by Springer 2022, which was co-edited by myself and Stephen Williams. Hello, Ian, and great to be talking to you. Good morning, Rod, and thanks for the opportunity to talk. Now, Ian, you've got uh, an unusual inside perspective on the story that I've just been outlining. Do you want to tell me a little bit about your background? Yes, I spent um, my early career in the fossil fuel industry. Uh, I worked for Royal Dutch Shell for many years in oil and gas exploration and production around the world in um, the UK, the North Sea in its early early development days, back in the 70s um, in the Middle East and uh, came to Australia in 1976, actually, first to establish a coal business here for Shell. Because um, in those days, after the first oil shocks, coal was seen as a bridge to the future, given the price of oil was rising very rapidly after um, the OPEC countries put a lot of pressure on global supply. I worked, continued to work in the oil industry here in Australia, sorry, in the coal industry here in Australia through the 80s, and um, at one point chaired the Australian Coal Association in the late 80s. Left the fossil fuel industry in the 1990, 1991, and I've really been working on climate activism ever since, trying to essentially reverse the impact of fossil fuels, I guess you could say. So my role these days is very much focused on um, climate activism and trying to get the real risk implications of climate change understood, because I think that is the fundamental failing that we now have in that um, whilst everybody talks about risks and threats and what have you and the concerns about China and Russia and uh, many other threats, the biggest one is climate change. And unless we start to seriously talk about those uh, threats and what that really represents, then frankly, the rest become rather academic. 
So that's my main main focus, but it does come with a background in the fossil fuel industry and uh, some understanding, I think, of where those companies have been coming from. So was it uh, a slow awakening or was there a real sudden light bulb moment in which you went, you know, this is really a problem, fossil fuels, something we really got to stop doing? Um, no, it was really a slow evolution, I think, in the sense that it's been clear for a long, long time that uh, increased carbon concentration in the atmosphere was going to warm the planet. I mean, the scientific basis for that goes back to uh, you know, the late 1800s and so on. Uh, what became clear in my, my early career, <clears throat> I was um, working in these sort of areas on the big issues that the, the we may face in the future. And the fact that sooner or later increased use of fossil fuel was going to influence the climate has been well known. I mean, the paper I've written, I think, in the, the book uh, highlights some of the early uh, commentary coming from organisations like Shell and Exxon, which one of which you quoted, I think, at the beginning. Um, this was well known in the 80s. And gradually, over time, the science has got better, the evidence has got clearer and clearer, and there comes a point where you really have to do something about it. Now, for me, that occurred during the course of the 80s. In the latter part of the 80s, when I was heavily involved in the coal industry here in Australia, we did a lot of work on what the implications of climate change for the coal industry would actually be. And uh, it was actually, I have to say, you know, quite constructive. I mean, there's a lot of research was done. A lot of serious discussion took place about how we could potentially minimise the impacts. And um, I think it's a fair commentary that the industry in many respects was much more progressive in the 80s than it has been since, before denial really dug in and people... Um, in, took an increasingly short-term view um, that the essentially the you know benefits to the industry in the short-term sense really had to take precedence over any longer-term concerns for the future of the planet, which is what it amounts to. And uh, unfortunately, things have gone downhill ever since. And I think even today, you see um, the fossil fuel industry and some of the major companies who were previously leaders like Shell and BP, for example, are now backing off their commitments to take serious action on climate, which is extremely concerning because at the same time, the risks are going in the opposite direction. They're increasing dramatically, as we've been seeing with the increased uh, impact of extreme events around the world and um, particularly in Australia. Now, I want to drill in a bit more to why that's happening and, and how the leaves <clears throat> of state have been co-opted by these industries. But I would like to just firstly cover a bit of uh, basic stuff here, and that's the role of energy in our civilization. because I think energy is the unseen worker behind the scenes, and the very fact that we're talking now is made possible because of energy. So can you talk a little bit about why uh, energy is central to the way our civilization functions? Well, I think the world runs on energy. 
I mean, we talk about the economy, you know, money, financial arrangements, so on, but the whole basis for the expansion of the global economy over over centuries has been the availability of um, of surplus energy on which to build societies. I mean, the only reason global population has increased from, uh, you know, below a billion people way back um, to around 8 billion today is because we've had surplus energy um, from fossil fuel. So we can't um, deny the benefit that fossil fuel has produced um, in allowing that sort of population growth and the economic expansion that's gone with it. Now, many people have benefited from that, particularly in the developed world, obviously, in terms of the, the high income you know, countries. A lot of people have not in the sense that we still have many, many areas of the world with extreme poverty. As uh, And um, unfortunately, a lot of those countries, are, are populations are those who suffer most from the effects of things like climate change. But the point the point is that unless that uh, fossil fuel energy had been there, we would never have seen this sort of evolution um, that has taken place. And it is, as you say, it is the fundamental issue behind all of our economic growth and so on. So if the availability of uh, excess energy starts to disappear, then the whole basis of our economy uh, comes into question. And that is actually what's happening now, because you can have too much of a good thing. Fossil fuels clearly were going to create a problem at some point. Um, we have left it too late to address that problem. And now we have some very big issues we have to go on top of if we're going to be able to survive um, uh, in our current form, if, if human civilization is to continue then we have to solve this energy crisis. And fossil fuels are now an existential threat to our future. So the alternatives are um, not as attractive in terms of the immediate return on investment that fossil fuel has produced. And that creates a problem because our economic system is based on the idea that you have to go for the highest possible returns. And so far... Uh, whilst renewable energies are improving, they are having difficulty to compete with the return on fossil fuels, particularly when the price of fossil fuel energy is um, elevated, as we've seen as a result of the Ukraine war. So we have this fundamental problem is now right in front of us. It's not going to go away unless it gets fixed extremely quickly. We're in big trouble. Yes, you uh, mentioned the term uh, excess energy and return on investment just now. I want to go into the economics of this situation in a moment, but uh, one more fundamental thing that I want to quickly discuss is uh, energy return on investment. So can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, that's really the fundamental parameter, I think, behind uh, the importance of energy itself. Essentially, when you extract um, fossil fuels from the ground, you have to put a certain amount of energy in to get them out. And if you are able to get more out than you have to put in, then you have an energy surplus. So if you go back to agrarian societies or subsistence type societies, 
uh, farming, for example, the energy that the farmer might put in, in a subsistence sense, was pretty much equal to the benefit he got out, and therefore you could survive essentially on that basis. If you want to expand industrial societies, you can't do it that way. You have to have more energy to create, to get you off the ground in the sense of um, creating more activity. So you can start building cities, building houses, um, new industries, and so on. So the energy source must produce a surplus. Now, as we move through history and away from agrarian type societies, um, we found ways and means of gradually doing that. I mean, um, people started to, you know, burn wood, for example, for energy. Um, coal was discovered, which people found they could burn and it generated energy. That in turn led to the development of the steam engine and the takeoff of the Industrial Revolution. And then we had the evolution of the oil and gas industries, um, initially oil in, uh, in the US and Pennsylvania which um, produced a pretty good return initially. And then the discovery of the very big reservoirs of gas in the Middle East, where the returns went up even more dramatically. So you found with a lot of those oil reservoirs, for example, that um, whereas an agrarian society, you might have just a one-to-one -one energy return or investment, as they call it. In the Middle East, in the big reservoirs, that return went up above 100 to 1. So in other words, you had to put one barrel of oil in and you've got 100 barrels worth out. And that excess 99 allowed you to develop what we now see in terms of human civilization. So the 50s, the 40s, the 50s and the 60s were bonanzas in terms of the energy return we were getting. We were finding all these very big reservoirs. Um, they were expanded gas developed as an industry which again produced a, a good a very good return uh, energy return on investment as it's called and um, over time we started to use up the best of those resources so we we picked the low-hanging fruit the easier things to get at like middle east reservoirs and so on and our society really developed off the back of that as time's gone by, we've ended up um, finding that the cost of um, sourcing uh, those fossil fuel resources has been increasing because it's got harder and harder to find them. In other words, you've had to move not uh, just drilling on land but offshore into things like the North Sea, into the Gulf of Mexico. Um, the technology required to do that is very complicated the cost of doing it increased dramatically. And so the return on investment, energy return on investment started to drop. So it's come down from, say, 100 to 1 plus in the Middle East, down to, you know, 20 to 1, and then even lower than that in a lot of the uh, offshore work. And then you get things like unconventional gas, where you <clears throat> you run out of conventional gas reservoirs. And people discovered the idea of fracking, which is to um, pressure gas reservoirs or <clears throat> gas um, formations where you've got very tight geological conditions and you put high pressure and it breaks it up or releases the gas. But that in turn gives you an even lower return on investment.
So gradually over time, we saw an increase in this return on investment, and now it's been coming down. The costs are getting more and more, um, and the benefits, the surplus energy is decreasing, which means we're having to run faster and faster to stay in the same place. Now, at the same time, I mean, the effect of all of this is uh, to uh, of using fossil fuel has been to, to create an increasing impact on the climate and hence the focus on renewables. And the en energy return on renewables initially was not very good at all um, because of the fact that you, you, know, you don't get as much energy out of a solar panel in proportional terms than um, you do out of a barrel of oil. And um, that has gradually improved as the efficiencies of solar panels has increased to the point where, you know, a lot of them are now really quite impressive. I and mean, you can get uh, returns of sort of 10 to 20 to 1 um, on solar activities and what have you. So there's this trade-off occurring between all of the sources of energy. But the fact is that we are not probably going to get the high energy return on investment out of renewables that we experienced as we went through the evolution of fossil fuels. Now that means uh, that creates major issues for the way the world is going to work because you don't you don't have the same surplus. I mean, you means you can't be as wasteful in using energy as we were in the development of the fossil fuel era. You really have to think very hard about energy efficiency. Um, you have to think about, frankly, our, our way of life. Um, can we afford to fly around the world on um, cheap holidays, you know, using jet fuels that um, really are making the planet fundamentally unsustainable? So what the whole energy equation uh, creates is a, a need to completely reframe the way society is thinking and society operates. Now, having come through an era where energy has been cheap, readily available, um, and what have you, and you've set up a society based on one concept of energy availability, we're now going to have, we now really are in the process of fundamentally rethinking that into a completely different way of life. And um, doing that is not easy because uh, all of the institutions that have grown up under the formal way of life obviously going to have to change, and they don't like that. We don't accept change, particularly big change, terribly readily. Is part of that rethinking our attitude to growth? Because we seem to be really attached to the notion that we can continue growing population and consumption indefinitely and that our planet can just continue to support that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the whole idea of economic growth um, is going to have to be completely rethought. I mean, I think it was, you know, Kenneth Boulding who said a long time ago, I mean, anybody who thinks you can continue growing on a finite planet is either a madman or economist or something. But um, I mean, though, you know, that's that's reality. I mean, you cannot keep growing economically in the way we have in the new energy environment. And we're already seeing that around the world because, uh, economies are having it, finding it harder and harder to, to sustain that growth. And the underlying cause is the energy issue. Nobody wants to talk about that. It's all about, you know, inflation or economic parameters, GDP, and et cetera. But behind it, the core issue is the lack of surplus energy and the fact that it's not going to change. I mean, we, we 
It doesn't mean to say we all go back to sackcloth and ashes. What it does mean is we're going to have to rethink the way society operates. Couple, you know, we need different sorts of growth. Um, you have to start looking much more at quality as opposed to quantity in any ideas of growth. And um, you also have, you know, ideas of degrowth or reducing the size of economies, some of which may be perfectly valid. So we're in a completely different world, I think, from the one that um, we all grew up in. And we do have solutions to that. But the problem with the real issue right now is the lack of preparedness to face that reality and start to seriously think through the way in which we're actually going to handle it. Because there's this terrible tendency, particularly in energy, to fall back on the status quo. And it only takes something like the Ukraine war to ex to accelerate that sort of retrograde thinking. And uh, you can see that coming out in the last few months, particularly. Well, uh, part of that thinking is attached to neoliberalism. Can you talk about neoliberalism? It's something that you bring up in the chapter that you wrote for our Springer book. Yeah, I mean, if you go back, Historically, you know, we came out of um, the Second World War with the world in a state of great disarray. I mean, we've had World War One, which was bad enough uh, to be followed by World War Two. Europe was completely destroyed in many senses, the same with Japan. Uh, there was a real sense that we had to recreate a world where wars could be avoided and uh, social responsibilities really required rebuilding. So you had major initiatives in trying to achieve that um, in things like the Marshall Plan and what have you and rebuilding Europe. Uh, <clears throat> a lot of very constructive thinking emerged, I think, in particularly in sort of social democratic sense. As time went by, that um, framework tended to ossify a fair bit and a lot of rigidities developed, which developed the thinking that in some ways we should look for the freeing up of economic systems and allowing markets to operate much more freely than they uh, were at um, that point, which I'm, I'm talking about the sort of late 40s, the early 50s and what have you, late 50s. And so the ideas of neoliberalism started to emerge that said, look, you really should let the markets have their head. Governments have a role, but the, that role really should be reduced. And that thinking gradually took hold into the 70s um, with the advent of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan in particular. It accelerated in, in really freeing up regulation and allowing the market to uh, essentially drive progress. Now that um, in some senses, a degree of that was probably arguably needed at that, at that particular point in time. But again, it uh, accelerated the point where that became the be-all and end-all of the global economy. Everybody started to pick up these ideas. Uh, the efforts continued to find ways and means of even greater freedom. And you ended up with things like um, uh, bonuses, pay for performance ideas for executives, where essentially you got rewarded 
purely on your results. And, um, you know, the market should be allowed to reign very freely in the sense that you pushed for deregulation, uh, allowing, you know, markets essentially sort out problems um, on their own. Now, that just really got to ridiculous points where the uh, fundamental ethos, I think, for the way in which um, industry and indeed governments operated, which was to take a balanced view, uh, which incorporated looking at both the short and long-term implications of activities that were going on, increasingly got thrown out of the window. And so any long-term issue dis concerns disappeared. And the focus became more and more on the short term. And if you add in the sort of bonus type structures that uh, started in the banking industry and the finance industry, uh, where your salary was cut right back and you were given big bonuses for achieving benefits and you know returns to the company, then the, the focus inevitably became on short-term um, issues and short-term returns. Governments also picked up the same ethos. And so the whole world has become increasingly one where long-term issues are ignored. And when you get into um, the issues of energy and the impact of things like fossil fuels, then that becomes a major problem because climate change uh, was developing because of fossil fuel use. The fossil fuel industry was... Um, a dominant player in the global economy increasingly from the 1960s onwards because of the role energy was playing. And uh, that industry itself became extremely short term. So that anything to do with climate, which is basically affecting the, the future of humanity, frankly, became less and less um, of a concern uh companies didn't want to know about it governments didn't want to know about it you've got the denialism that we saw happening and so uh you know the neoliberal model has led us to the point where it, it has now created a massive problem which is an existential threat to our future it's nothing less than that and yet it's incapable of actually solving that problem and we haven't yet managed to kick the neoliberal model. And it, we are really now in a race against time as to whether we can do that. It assumes the availability of resources is pretty much infinite. Um, so the idea that you might have limits to the way in which economies can grow because of resource constraints is not something that's been part of that classical framework as people like Steve Keane have, um, you know, sort of commented in more detail. The problem with it is it's meant that in things like energy and fossil fuel use, the impacts of using uh, those resources have not been incorporated into the economic equation. So, for example, uh, the damage that is caused by climate change is not a cost then a lot of the economic activity that's been going on for decades would actually be uneconomic. And in particular, the, the whole issue of carbon pricing. I mean, that's the core in the climate debate, is that the um, damage caused by climate change is not on the balance sheet of any company. Essentially, 
that was um, there was an attempt to try and change that with introducing a carbon pricing. And the industry has always fought tooth and nail to avoid it because it then starts to raise questions about the, the fundamentals of the fossil fuel industry itself in ways they'd prefer not to know about. So whilst we have a lot of, um, you know, pretense that people are prepared to put carbon pricing in place, and uh, many companies would claim that the um, that has been done on an individual company basis when they look at new projects, the industry overall has fought tooth and nail for it not to be adopted in an across-the-economy sense. But these are the sort of externalities that people talk about in the sense that um, there are costs which community, the community bear, that the companies creating these costs can ignore. And, I mean, that's been a fundamental failing of the um, classical economic model since its um, creation. And those things, historically, you can argue, have not been that important in the sense that with smaller population levels and with ready availability of resources, um, they haven't been a major issue. But as population has grown and the impact of humanity on the environment has grown, they become more and more important. But the fact that they're not accounted for in the economic equation means that we can go ahead and basically destroy uh, <clears throat> natural assets, whether they be biodiversity, you know, wildlife, poisoning the atmosphere, poisoning uh, waterways and things of that kind. That sort of thing has been allowed to progress because there's been no real economic check on it and um, it's not been used as a filter to stop an undesirable uh, activity. Now we're now getting to the point where you can't do that any longer. It's patently clear that if we keep on doing what we're doing, we don't have a future. And um, again, um, progressive elements in industry in terms of economic thinking are starting to try and do something about it but there's still an enormous resistance to really um, substantial uh, changes to make these things count and do you support a price on carbon i mean it's the obvious thing to do and i i chaired the group in 1998 to 2000 that designed the first system in australia to try and do that I mean, what the carbon price does is effectively try and account for those external costs that companies at the present time don't pay. Now, if you include those costs, then it changes the way you look at the economics of your company operation. And it makes renewables, for example, much more attractive, which they should be. Um, it makes fossil fuel use less attractive, which it should be. And it changes the direction of society. And... Um, it, it ought to be the core of any sensible attempt to come to grips with stuff like climate. Now, we knew that back in the 1980s, you know, but there's been this enormous resistance to actually doing anything serious about it, which continues to this day. So, I mean, we have the stupid argument at the moment about um, things like safeguard mechanisms um, in our domestic um, uh, uh, debate here in Australia. A carbon tax, which is not a tax actually, it's actually 
the reflection of the cost um, getting rid of a subsidy, if you like, to the fossil fuel industry. But a carbon price would effectively solve that problem overnight if it was properly implemented. But we go round and round the houses trying to find other ways of uh, solving the problem because we're not prepared to be upfront and accept that that's the implication um, that we should be addressing. Now, as I said in my introduction, uh, the burning of fossil fuels is a disaster for humanity and a disaster for the planet. And yet, here we are, we're still doing it. So in some way, the fossil fuel industry has co-opted the machinery of government. Uh, can you tell me a bit about how that's actually happened? Now, as fossil fuels have become more important, inevitably, the political influence of those players has increased. And today it is the dominant industry around the world, um, whichever way you look. And when you get to something like addressing climate change, which is the damage that industry is causing, and you look at the combination of not just the influence they have, but the short-term nature of our economic system, which we've touched on, then it's very hard for people who've been in those industries all of their careers to accept that what they've been doing is essentially destroying our future. They don't want to do that. Um, they have an economic model that says that our role in life is to provide return for shareholders. The way the economic system has been set up, that return is a short-term return where increasingly long-term issues are not relevant. And therefore, the people in power are extremely reluctant to face up to those facts. I mean, the, the ethical dimensions, the moral dimensions of business, because of the short-termism, in my view, have been fundamentally changed for the worse, where people used to think about long-term issues, the potential benefits to future generations, quite seriously. They no longer do that because the immediate demands on them are very much short term. And there is also the assumption that somehow technology, which has been obviously a major player in the way in which it evolved, as well as the, you know, the availability of fossil fuels, can solve the problem. So if you put all that together, then it's little wonder that the, you know, the, the historically powerful players will continue to exert enormous influence on the way in which the system will evolve. That can be positive or negative, and so far, unfortunately, it's been negative. So can you tell me a bit more about how the fossil industry manipulates the levers of government? Well, the industry um, operates in numerous ways. I mean, there's direct contact with governments and the influence um, that that plays chief executives talking to politicians all the things that go on there are donations that um, fossil fuel companies will make to governments to support their uh, their own sort of strategies and uh, thinking there are also innumerable think tanks around the world which often the industry has put together to uh, support and increase its influence as an industry as opposed to individual companies because companies are often reluctant to go public. They prefer to operate behind the scenes and operating through think tanks has been a 
an increasingly important way in which they exercise their influence uh, through the, the 80s, the 90s, and up to the present day. And that gets linked um, very much to political ideologies, whether you're a conservative or progressive and so on. And uh, unfortunately, as in many other parts where, you know, strands of life, extremism have become a feature of, uh, of that discussion. So you get extreme ideological positions that um, the facts bear little relevance. It's really a question of preserving the status quo, which is the way a lot of our political debate, unfortunately, has gone. Now, you can argue that um, that might not have been as important an issue in previous eras, when you reach the point where the fundamental you know, existence of humanity and civilization and so on is now under threat, then that really needs to be exposed. And uh, we need far greater levels of transparency than we have been seeing so far. And the more the community can do to call that out, the better, because in the end, it is all of us in a community sense who are now being affected by these things in ways that we've never really seen before. So do you see community action as a critical way to counteract this? Well, I think the fundamental thing you've got to come back to in all of this is the question of the risks and the uncertainties we face, which is something that is swept under the carpet continually. I mean, if you look at the energy debate, it's all about, well, what, should we have ga oil or gas or coal or should we move to renewables? Um, yes, yes, you know, climate is an issue, but it's, it's the debate is conducted in terms of often relative economics that, you know, if we do this, it's going to cost us X, if we do it, the other, it's going to cost us Y, and we really can't afford to make the change. Nobody talks about why are we having to do this in the first place. Now, the, the companies and governments have been well-versed in what people call risk management for eons. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a fundamental feature of the oil industry that they are experts in risk management and how you, you know, introduce new technologies, offshore technologies, things of that kind. What are the risks? How do you offset them? What are the technological solutions we can possibly put forward? The big issue in this is that nobody has any real experience of what I've termed existential risk. In other words, a risk that has the capacity to destroy a society or destroy a company totally. Now, we don't have any real experience of this uh, at a global level because we've never encountered it as humanity. And most of the debate that is going on is talking about risk in a conventional sense. You can trade it off, you can quantify it, you can put it into computer models. We don't have any experience of something that completely wipe humanity off the map. And that is what we're now dealing with. But we are, we are talking about it in entirely the wrong framework. So we think we can somehow solve this by you know, better returns on assets here or there, changing the technology and what have you. But when you come to the point of the fact that society is under threat as a whole, we don't have the means to deal with it. The companies are not capable of dealing with it. They don't want to address it. Politicians don't like to talk about it because it's too hard. So we sweep it under the carpet. It's 
So if you look at, for example, the um, major scientific organization that provides input to the United Nations climate change framework, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they don't do core research. They take all the research from around the world, they put it together every six or seven years and come up with a big report that says this is the uh, issue with climate, this is what we're facing. That analysis is politically um, <clears throat> overseen and the big threats in, in the climate arena are actually not included in that analysis because for the simple reason we don't know enough about them. You have you must distinguish between risk and uncertainty. Risk is something that you can quantify. You can put probabilities around it. You can say the chance of hitting, you know, two degrees C temperature increase is going to be uh, um, 75% given certain levels of carbon concentration in the atmosphere. What is missing is the fact that behind all of that, there are uncertainties that we know exist, but we cannot quantify them. These are things, if you take it in a climate sense, you can go back eons. Uh, we know that when temperatures were at a certain level, then all of the uh, sea ice in the Arctic or the Antarctic melted and large parts of the Greenland ice sheet and sea levels were 25, 30 meters higher than they are today. We know that at current levels of temperature, that's what happened historically. We don't know when that's gonna happen in the future or how fast it might occur because we're already at those temperatures. And therefore that's a major uncertainty, but those sort of things are not included in these models. And that's what you now have to worry about is the big threats we have not quantified because we don't have the information. And therefore we are flying blind in a sense in trying to handle these issues. Now, the fact that uh, you know this can be an existential threat to say coastal communities of sea levels to go up 10 or 20 meters um, around the world is completely ignored. So the central banks have said, look, okay, we must address this. We need to get our banks around the world to all think about it, see what their exposure is. So they've come up with a whole lot of scenarios that are built around this intergovernmental panel on climate change analysis, which ignores these very big threats, the tipping point threats, the uncertainties that we know are out there but can't be quantified. So what that does is then allow companies to pick up those scenarios and say, well, as long as we work within this framework, then um, all will be well, because the central banks have told us that's the case. So what they're actually doing is institutionalizing failure in the sense of ignoring the big threats, setting the world up for an analysis, a structure that enables companies to say they will continue using fossil fuels because they think under that framework they can get away with it. And uh, we know that um, out there, the really important issues are, are not being addressed. So, you know, this is, this is becoming an extremely dangerous situation 
And the fundamental issue is we have to start thinking in existential terms, not in terms of historic. So this kind of blind faith in technology, that technology will be enough to save us, uh, is it? Well, I think it, it's, it's extremely dangerous. I mean, technology has always been important and it will continue to be so in my view. It, it's it's um, you know, human ingenuity, the things we can you know, think of doing and so on, has got us out of trouble continually and have provided um, you know, great benefits to the world historically. And I think that will continue to be the case, provided it's used sensibly. But the problem with this now is that the, um, the, the potential benefits of technology are being used as an excuse to avoid taking uh, major action on the big dangers we face on things like climate and biodiversity loss and what have you. I mean, if you look at the climate debate, for example, we are now saying, uh, look, we really have a problem in the sense that um, we certainly have got renewable technologies that will work. We have to develop those. They're not sufficiently developed thus far. Therefore, we have to keep using oil and gas. We can continue to do that because we've got all these technologies out there which will enable us to sequester the carbon. Things like carbon capture and storage, direct um, carbon capture from the atmosphere, so-called BECS, um, uh, carbon capture systems and so on. What people are doing, this is the classic case of moral hazard, where we're saying, look, we ought to keep doing producing fossil fuel because the technology will come to save us. None of those technologies exist at scale to sequester carbon. So to continue developing uh, oil and gas is completely irresponsible. When we don't have the solutions available, they may become available, but it's extremely unlikely that conventional carbon capture and storage is going to work at scale. It hasn't for 30, 40 years. There's no sign of this going to. And uh, I mean, this is morally bankrupt to essentially um, keep doing this. But nonetheless, the technology um, argument gives us a crutch uh, against which to try and, you know, the fossil fuel leaders keep on therefore trying to push their burrow and expanding their activities. Uh, on the grounds that they're also investing in all these other things, and of course that'll solve the problem. Well, we've reached the end of that road. It's not, and uh, we need to be honest about it. But it brings you back to this existential risk issue again, because if you don't want to acknowledge the fact that we have these extreme risks, then people think you know it's a fair bet to try and get away with it because the, da the dangers of it failing are not necessarily a problem. It, it's, you know, it's a lack of preparedness to listen to what the science is telling us about the position, the extreme position we've now reached. Um, that is, is just being used as an excuse. So I think the, you know, the technology argument is extremely dangerous uh, in the way that it's now being used. I don't, I don't undermine, I don't, um, you know, I want to sort of uh, completely undermine the arguments that technology will be useful, um, because I think it will. But you can't use it in the way that the fossil fuel is currently trying to do it. Well, I would say that uh, climate change now progressed to the point where it's no longer a risk. It's now actually happening. So I would call it uh, 
an issue. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up today? Well, I think I think the um, the core issue is is this fact that you are now in a world where the the threat is that we will completely destroy civilization. I mean, that is what uh, climate is telling us. It's what the biodiversity issues are telling us. Uh, we don't have institutions that are capable of absorbing that at the moment and acting upon it. Uh, whether it be within government, within you know organisations like the um, the World Bank, um, the uh, you know the central bank organisations, the finance industry. I mean, they haven't yet got their head around the idea of a genuine existential threat, uh, which in fact is now upon us. And the big issue, I think, for all of us is that we have to start increasingly focusing on getting that out publicly, um, talking it through, not in the negative, um, you know, doomsday sense, but in the sense of saying, unless you are honest about the problem you have, you will never solve it. And I mean, that's the, the first lesson of risk management that um, I got exposed to a long time ago. But this is a completely different level. So we have to have that honest public debate not in a negative sense, but in a positive, constructive one of saying, okay, well, we are where we are. What are we going to do about it? And that needs far greater transparency. It needs around the world a level of global cooperation, which we have never, ever seen. And obviously, that's hard to think of at the moment with the Ukraine war and the continual saber rattling between China and the US and uh, our own politicians. But I mean, for God's sake, you know, we are spending, what is it, $2 trillion a year on defense around the world. The subsidies being given to the fossil fuel industry, if you include the externalities, around $6 trillion a year. All of that money should be devoted to trying to get on these, on top of these sort of ex existential threats we now face. And that is the challenge I think that humanity's got is we have to completely rethink our priorities given where we've got to. And that's going to need um, massive cooperation, not conflict and competition in the historic way we've seen it. Uh, the real question for us is, are we capable of actually doing that in the future or not? And that's where I think the community focus is, needs to really now be centred. Uh, yes, your comment about community reminds me of a quote I picked up from a seventh generation coal miner a few years ago. Now, he was leading the anti-coal mining rally to uh, Queensland and he said, where the people lead, the leaders will follow. And with that, Ian, uh, thank you very much for your time.